0: Chapter 3 of Silly and its Legends by Henry James Whitfeld. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter 3. Lothoso or the Lioness. Once upon a time, long centuries ago, not only, quote, ere William led his Norman horde to plunder all of the main, and the brave Saxon's patient sword had yet expelled the Dane, end quote, but far back in those shadowy annals, which are, at once so perplexing and so fascinating, through which we love, quote, that glance to cast that lifts the veil and lives amid the past to read the high tales of virtue and of crime robed in the dread magnificence of time when error's beauteous mist forbids to scan the stern, sad outlines of primeval man, End quote. Long, long centuries ago, ere the raven standard flew over our isle, ere Hengist and Horsa, came in as allies and remained as masters, ere Britain ceased to belong to the British, the events occurred which I have embodied in the following legend. Those who have pored over the old romances of chivalry, and especially the goodly tomes of Sir Thomas Maylor, know well the state of things that existed during the reign of King Arthur. There is a charm in those rude days, an inexpressible charm, against which we struggle in vain. We see Arthur of Britain drawing his good-sword Excalibur from the Enchanted Stone and "'Merlin the great wizard, and the round-table of Camelot, "'with its unrivaled knights, as they feast in hall, "'their forms rise up before us. "'We see Sir Kay the Seneschal, "'whose high qualities were tarnished by his love for scornful jests, "'and Sir Bors de Gannis, and the noble Sir Ector de Maras, "'and Sir Caradoc, the husband of the fairest and most virtuous dame, "'and Sir Tristram, who loved too well the lady of his uncle, "'the false king Mark, and Lancelot of the Lake, the peerless warrior,' Over whose dead body it was said so beautifully, He was the kindest man that ever struck with sword, and he was the goodliest person that ever rode among the throng of knights, and he was the meekest man and the gentlest that did ever eat in hall among ladies, and he was the sternest knight to his mortal foe that ever laid lance in rest. At the head of the board is Arthur, every inch a king, with his majestic presence and his kindly smile nor was there wanting beauty at that royal banquet. Queen Guinevere was there regal in all respects, save one, with her bright train, alas, that those so lovely should shrink before the ordeal of virtue, and that one only of their number should dare to pledge the enchanted cup of gold and to wear the embroidered robe. Reader's note, footnote. One day during a feast, a dwarf bought in a robe and a golden cup and proclaimed that none but a virtuous dame could quaff from the one or wear the other, the only lady in the court who succeeded in doing so was the wife of Sir Caradoc, as Scott says, And still those warriors' fame survives, for faith so constant shown. There were two who loved their neighbours' wives, and one who loved his own. Quote. In the days of my tale, the terrors of Tintagel's spear were yet existing, though the sway of the great monarch approached its close. Arthur was holding high court in his castle of Tintagel, and around him were gathered his paladins... Diminished indeed in numbers by long and bloody war, but still presenting an array which had never yet known reversal defeat, the king was there as usual, and at his right hand sat his queen, but the brow of Arthur was sad and grew dark when he marked the glances that passed between Guinevere and Sir Lancelot. The spirit of the assembled knights was not what it was. There were among them empty seats, and they could not but remember that those places were not always void by death, but that even in that gallant company treason had stolen in and seduced some of those deemed the bravest and the best. High among the gathered nobles was an ominous gap caused by the absence of Prince Mordred, and rumour spoke of evil designs entertained by him against his kinsman and benefactor, even to the levying of open war. However, though changed from the frank courtesy and merriment of other days, the scene was to the careless eye splendid and even gay. There was no lack of mirth and song, Brave men whispered their homage to no unwilling ears, and soft cheeks waxed rosy and wore a brighter charm as the feast wore on and The royal brow of Arthur grew relaxed and lost its wrinkles as he jested with the maidens of the queen and Though all was not as it once was, there was over all a semblance of enjoyment and a callous bravery that deceived the eye. If it were a counterfeit, it was a successful one to those who did not look below the surface. The glory of the round table was untarnished, and the gaiety of its knights unimpaired. When the feast was over, Arthur arose from his throne, and, taking in his hand a golden cup, pledged his guests as of yore. But when he lifted the chalice to his lips, a shudder passed over him, and he cast it from him with an action of horror and disgust. It is not wine, he exclaimed, it is blood. My father Merlin is among us, and there is evil in the coming days. Break we up our court, my peers, it is no time for feasting, but rather for fasting and prayer." As he spoke, he glanced anxiously and bitterly at the vacant stall of his cousin Mordred. It was no longer unfilled. A shadowy form seemed to darkly rest upon it. There was no distinct figure, no bodied phantom, but a vast dim likeness of something terrible and strange. A cloudy spirit brooded over the traitor's seat. The assembly broke up in ghastly silence. They departed speechless and awestruck. They went to pray against the ills to come. These came, alas, too soon. Next morning arrived a weary post with tidings of the revolt of Mordred, then followed day after day fresh disasters. Foes banded together, and friends fell off. All whom the high-handed king had put down and repressed, all from whom he had wrung ill-gotten spoils, all with whom, in fair fight, he had contended for mastery, all false friends he had thought to buy with benefits, now leagued together against him. Single malcontents formed a band, and bands united swelled into an army, It advanced, with Mordred at its head, to strike a blow for the throne of Britain. All the while Arthur lay still at Tintagel and gave no sign of life. Perhaps he had lost somewhat of his early vigour. Perhaps he wished to give time to his enemies to declare themselves, that he might know on whom, at last, to rely. Perhaps he lingered in an agony of proud doubt and indecision, but perhaps also, and it was most like the stout warrior, he disdained to show any apprehensions of a foe that he despised." Taking counsel only of his own kingly heart, he remained tranquil and undisturbed in his hold, looking down from thence upon the storm as it came to a head in the plain below, and waiting for the proper hour to sally forth and scatter it. It was still no child's play, the game was for an empire, and battles were to decide the cast. Nor were the players ill-matched, nor was it an impar congressus Achille, those whom he was to meet in the coming war, were no longer rude pagans or soldans clad in barbaric arms, They were the flower of his own chivalry, headed by a prince of his own blood. Together they had ridden through many a bloody field, and not a few of the champions opposed to him had slept under the same cloak after a day of common danger. They had been trained beneath his experienced eye, and had learned the art of war under the guiding of his leading staff. Many a one of them could say, in the expressive language of scripture, "'Remember how thou and I rode together after Ahab?' And old times must surely have touched their hearts when they saw, in their front, that banner under which they had been so long victorious, and that well-known leader with his sad yet imperial glance, and his hair of silver sable, and his look telling rather of sorrow than of years. But rebellion has no shame, it grows more bitter for its very baseness, and fiercer for the badness of its cause. The array of Mordred pressed onwards in still increasing numbers, The land of Cornwall, never too friendly to Arthur, was alive with foes. They marched upon Tintagel sternly but slowly, for they had an instinctive dread of the old chief, as he lay grimly in his fastness, his renowned knights within its halls, his veteran levies around them, and in the centre of the hall himself, a host calm, unshaken, and resolute. They prepared to beard the lion in his den, but it was with secret misgivings that they did so, and many a heart, but knew no other fear, faltered on its approach, and still Arthur never moved. It seemed as if he did not deign to parley with his revolted subjects. Their advanced guards and scouts might be described from the Dijon Tower of the castle, but no movement followed the discovery. The main body was even seen, but the king lay stern and still. Suddenly, at daybreak one morning, the great bell of the fortress rang out a stirring peal, and before the barbican... The trumpets sounded to horse, and all was bustle, and waving of pennons and marshalling to arms. And in a short time Arthur rode out from the gate, followed by the mighty who still adhered to him. There filed onwards the most renowned of his followers, Sir Lancelot and Sir Tristram, Sir Banyan and Sir Boar, Sir Ector and Sir Cote Maltile, Sir Caradoc and Sir Percival, without a stain, they were the fathers of the war, the chosen of Britain. They were men whom would scorn amid the reel of strife to yield one step for death or life. And now, unconquerable, in proud defiance, they went forth to do battle for God and their king. Alone at their head was Arthur with a brow of marble, collected and self-possessed. And as he passed on, he issued his commands from time to time, but his words were brief and stern, and he never looked back. Men thought that the shade of Merlin held communion with him, and so went forth Arthur to the last of his fields." The next evening, a band of warriors was seen urging their weary steeds across the wild heaths that were common in Cornwall. Their course was in the direction of Cassaterras, and that fair, wide tract of country called, in the Cornish tongue, Lothoso. Their numbers were formidable, amounting to several hundreds, but they were in no mood nor condition for resistance, as was shown by their hacked armour and torn surcoats, and in many instances by the blood that welled from their unstaunched wounds. They hurried for life and death over the wastes before them. Not a word was spoken, Now and then a straggler fell to the rear from sheer exhaustion, but his absence in the disordered ranks was unmarked. Sometimes they paused for a few minutes at a brook or spring, suffered their horses to take a hasty drink, tightened the saddle-girths, and were gone. Their pace, as may be supposed, was not too quick, but they made some progress, and when, as darkness fell, they drew their reins and prepared to encamp for the night, it was after thirty miles sped over rough and broken roads. Glory had apparently little to do with that tumultuous disarray. Yet these jaded riders flying before the face of their pursuer were all that remained of the chivalry of Britain. Arthur lay dead upon the plain, the banner that had covered his breast, until all was lost, was now borne, torn and bloody in the van. The survivors of that dreadful day were fleeing for their lives, and Mordred thundered upon their rear. They arose in the morning, and bound them again for flight, veterans as they were the mere hardship of a rough ride, and an unbroken fast was a trifle. They wrecked little of either, but disgrace and defeat were new and strange evils. These were the true bitterness of death, nor could they altogether comprehend them, nor believe them, as yet, to be a sad and stern reality. They could attribute the dishonour that had tarnished their arms to no particular cause. There was no apparent reason for their fall. The stars in their courses had fought against them, and palsied their stout arms and made their skill and valour vain. They brooded over these things as they rode on. They did not ponder deeply, for the recent shock had confused and rendered dull their ideas. But thoughts like these floated unconsciously through their brain. Arthur of Britain had gone down, and the best lances in the world were flying for their lives with a conquering foe in hot chase after them. The course of these waking visions was interrupted by the notes of a trumpet, which followed them with a prolonged wail through the air. Then it came louder and yet more loud. They halted for a moment and looked back. The veteran warriors could not brook to fly... They had submitted to misfortune. They could no longer bear disgrace. As they gazed, the air became radiant with the reflected light of steel, as shields and morions and lances gleamed fitfully from the brow of a distant hill. It was the glimmering of the pursuer's arms. Should they make a stand and die? Should they condescend to purchase life by a farther retreat? There was the traitor, the murderer of his kinsman and sovereign. Should they not breathe their charges and await his coming— and strike one stroke for revenge. While they paused, gloomy and irresolute, and gazed steadily at the advancing forces, there seemed to come between them a shadowy dimness that assumed gradually the form of a gigantic figure. It was like a mountain mist, and yet it wore the shape and aspect of humanity. There was a likeness in its awful lineaments, a resemblance to one honoured and long departed, which the aged knights recognised at once. It was the awful ghost of Merlin like a sullen cloud, but yet indistinct with the principle of life, it upreared its huge outlines between the spoilers and their prey, terrible in its indistinctness and with a supernatural and spiritual grandeur rather felt than seen. It was a gulf between the two parties, impassable as between the Egyptians and the flying Hebrews, and it troubled the following host and checked them in their headlong speed, and so the chase continued. Sullenly the fugitives retired, to the refuge they had chosen, and as sullenly did Mordred follow, hating those he had injured, hunting them to the death, and restrained only in his vindictive career by the clouded aspect of that dusky barrier which he dared not brave. By the side of the road, not far from that spot, where in after days the piety of Athelstan founded the college and church of St. Berrien, there dwelt a holy hermit. In his poor cell one of the knights whose wounds were mortal lay down and departed from life. As the hermit knelt and prayed by the body, Mordred rode up. His face was pale as death and was rendered more ghastly by a vivid blue wound that traversed his whole forehead and was lost amid his hair matted and soaked with blood. He dismounted and entered the hut. The hermit and the dead man were its only tenants save him. He looked upon the face of the corpse. It was the face of an early comrade of his own. The same blood ran in the veins of each of their mothers, He turned gloomily away, and signed the sign of the cross, involuntarily, upon his breast. The hermit sighed when he beheld the action. Alas, he said to Mordred, thou hast in one day done more evil than all thy ancestry have ever in their whole lives done of good. The crown of Arthur is upon thy brow, but the brand of Cain is there also. Go on, thou traitor to God and man. And Mordred smote him angrily with his gauntlet. Go on said the recluse. Thy course is well nigh done. The shadow of a mighty one is brooding over thee. Go on and die. And Mordred mounted his horse and urged it furiously forward, but the animal refused to obey the spur. The power of that dread spirit was before him. It had far more terrors for the charger than beat or steel. The avenging spectre would not give place to man's wrath. After a long and ineffectual struggle, the might of the unearthly prevailed. The ghastly chase was resumed with the same dogged sullenness as before, and now Mordred reached a lofty slope from which more clearly than he had hitherto been able to do, he could see his retiring enemies. They were already at a very considerable distance upon that winding road which led over the fertile tract of country called in Cornish, Lothoso, or in after days, the Lioness. They were so far in advance that he could only follow their course by catching at intervals the gleaming of their arms." Around him was that fair land, now so long lost and forgotten, from the bosom of which men for ages had dug mineral wealth, upon which were seen no fewer than one hundred and forty stately churches, and whose beauty and fruitfulness have been the theme of many of a romantic lay. Broken sunlight floated over its soft glades, it never looked so grandly glorious as on that hour of its fate. As Mordred pressed on, full of one thought alone, already in imagination, Hemming in to slaughter or driving into the waves his enemies, his attendants and followers began to be sensible of a change in the atmosphere, of a something oppressive and horrible, though he himself perceived it not. Huge battlemented clouds, tinged with lurid red, hung over the horizon. The air became sultry and choking. A tremulous and wavy motion shook the ground at intervals. A low sound, like distant thunder, moaned around. The soldiers of his train drew closer together, awestruck and terrified, but Mordred heard only the evil voice of his own passions. The War of the Elements gave unmistakable signs of its awaking, but Mordred perceived it not. At last, amid a silence that might be felt, so dreadful was it and so dull, that fearful shade which had hitherto gone before him and restrained his madness, suddenly itself stopped. It assumed a definite shape. It was the form of Merlin, the enchanter, But it was even more terrible than Merlin, for it united the unearthly glare of the spectre with the grandeur of the inspired man. Right in Mordred's path, face to face, did the avenger stand. They remained for a few seconds motionless, frowning upon each other. Neither spake, save with the eye. After those few seconds, the great wizard raised his arm. Then there ensued a confused muttering, a sound as though the foundations of the great deep were broken up. Soon the voice of the subterranean thunder increased and the firm soil beneath their feet began to whelk and wave and fissures appeared upon the surface and the rocks swelled like the throes of a labouring sea. With a wild cry of agony, the band of pursuers became, in turn, the pursued. They wheeled and rushed away in headlong flight, but it was in vain. The earth, rent in a thousand fragments, in the grasp of that earthquake, upheaved its surface convulsively gave one brief and conscious pause and then at once sank down for ever beneath the level of the deep in a moment a continent was submerged with all its works of art and piety with all its living tribes with all its passions and hopes and fears the soldiers of mordred were whirled away in the stream created by that sudden gulf which even now flows so violently over its prey below last of all Mordred remained, as it were, fascinated and paralysed, gazing at the phantom, with a look in which horror struggled with hate, and which was stamped with scorn and defiance to the end. That morning had dawned upon as bright a scene as ever met the eye. At evening there was naught from what was then first termed the land's end to St. Martin's head, but a howling and boiling wilderness of waves, bearing here and there upon its bosom a fragment from the perished world beneath, or a course tossed upon the billows, of which seabirds wheeled and screamed. The remnant that was preserved reached in safety Cassateris, called afterwards Siluria, and now Silly. Another derivation of the word is from Cilia, the Cornish for conger, a fish plentiful and much valued here. Footnote ends. There the wicked ceased to trouble, and the weary were at rest. In their island home, upon which still the sea encroaches daily, they dwelt securely. From St. Martin's height, on their arrival, they saw the catastrophe that overwhelmed their enemies and dismounting, knelt upon the turf and thanked God for their deliverance. They never more sought the Britain of their hope and fame. It would have been a changed and melancholy home for them. Arthur was in his tomb at Glastonbury, Guinevere was dead, the round table was broken, and its best knights perished or dispersed. Their work was done. In the Isles of Scilly, thus miraculously severed from the mainland and, as it were, set apart for their sakes, they lived and there they died. In after days, their children raised a stately religious house at Tresco over their bones, but their memory gradually faded away and was forgotten. Sometimes, on a clear day, there may be seen the remnants of walls or buildings under the sea. Sometimes fishermen bring up relics from other times, and men wonder at them and speculate upon their cause and use. Strangers make pilgrimage to Scilly and marvel whether it ever exceeded its present limits. But the account of its isolation is remembered only as a confused dream. It is a mystery, an old world tale, a fragment of which, like a portion of a wreck, floats about here and there in the visions of the past. Such is the legend of the lioness. End of chapter 3. Recording by Timothy Ferguson.